So um, <clears throat> there are uh, a few big questions that people have uh, around, not just um, within the faith, but people outside the faith. People have uh, objections, common objections, when we talk about our faith. They say, oh, but what about this? But what about this? There's all these questions about Christianity. Uh, how do you know it's true? And actually, uh, very commonly, we see the same objections coming up again and again. Definitely not going to try and deal with them all today. But uh, very often, people will come up with the same questions. Surely, you don't believe all that. In today's scientific world, where we know about black holes and general relativity and quantum physics, surely science has disproved religion is one question. Um, isn't the Bible full of mistakes? You know, that's what I've heard, that lots of people translated it and different people, uh, scribes wrote it down, there's different translations. Uh, surely it's full of inconsistencies. Or isn't it just all superstition? You know, why do you believe in that when you don't believe in Father Christmas or fairies at the bottom of your garden? Has been said to me numerous times in various atheist forums that I, I engage in um, on the internet. But often actually what I've seen and what I've read, is two questions come up more than any others. Two questions, two objections to the Christian faith. One of them is the one we're talking about today, about other religions. Anyone want to have a guess what the other one is? Yeah, well done. You all said the same thing, actually. Actually, the main two questions that come up again and again are, first of all, if there is a good God, an all-powerful God, why is there so much suffering in the world? How can that be? A big question, a big question. And then the second question, don't all religions lead to God, is the, big, is the other big question. Now, we can't deal with all those. There's lots of material around to read on those. I've written quite a few articles on both of those topics on my website, sevenminutes.net. Short articles if you're interested in any of those big questions. But today, we are only dealing with one of those, which is the one about other religions. Because what do we do about other religions? It is a question that people ask, and it's a question that Christians ask. What about the guy I know at work who's the faithful Muslim? What, do, what, what does God make of that? Surely they are as faithful as me. Surely they are trying their best to live according to the light that they have. What does God make of that? And ultimately the question comes, don't all religions lead to God? Isn't that... Don't all religions lead to God as long as you're following your faith sincerely? Well, Christians are divided on this. And there are different views. And briefly, I'm going to tell you the different views that are out there before we then look at the scriptural passage, the Bible passage for today. So one view is what's called universalism or universalist, that God saves everyone anyway doesn't matter what you believe. In the end, God is so loving that everybody, God cares for everybody, and everybody will be saved. And people who believe this, Christians who believe this, will use Bible passages such as these. So you've got up there 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. It's the same word all in both cases. So if we're all uh, in trouble because of Adam and Eve's sin... Surely, the, the God, Christ has saved all of us, all people, or isn't Christ somehow weaker than Adam, is the argument. Uh, or indeed, uh, the intriguing verse, actually, in 1 Timothy 4, we have put 
our hope in the living God, who is the saviour of all people, and especially all those who believe. Or Romans 5, similar to the first one, uh, as one trespass resulted in condemnation of all people, so one righteous act results in justification or salvation and life for all people. So there are verses that people can use to defend that view. But there are other scriptural passages that are ignored. So people who are universalists tend to struggle with verses like this. So Acts chapter 4, Peter comes and says, For there is no other name, no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Only Jesus. There is no other name. Or uh, John, as we, uh, John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God, no one comes to the Father except through me, said Jesus. Or in Romans 10, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. But it has to be, has to be that. It has to be Jesus. Which, and universalism has, a, has struggles with verses like that. Uh, there's a kind of a, a, a more diluted form of universalism that says, well, maybe not everybody gets to God, but everybody who believes in a faith and is seeking God will get to God. As long as you believe in some kind of God, that's fine. Um, whoops, God went too much. Uh, and uh, their, their argument is based on, well, isn't a person's religion an accident of where they were born? <clears throat> we happen to be, most of us, born here in the West, where there is at least a culture of Christianity. If you were born in Saudi Arabia, well, more than 90% <clears throat> excuse me, of people are Muslims, so you'd probably be a Muslim. If you're born in Thailand, more than 90% of people are Buddhists, so you'd probably be a Buddhist. If you're born in India, more than 90% of people in India are Hindus, so you'd probably be a Hindu, etc., 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 is the argument um, that people have. So, you know, how can you, how can you blame somebody for not being a Christian? All religions lead to the same place, and there is truth in every faith, they say. As long as people live with the light that they've got. This, it's, it's the same prop, same universalist position, same issues with those verses we just looked at. For there is no other, no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved, said Peter. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, said Jesus. Right at the other end of the scale, so that's universalism, which is at one end of the spectrum, and some Christians will believe that. Right at the opposite end, we've got this thing called exclusivism, or exclusive people. There's an exclusivist view where Christians uh, exclusively believe that Jesus is the only way, possible way. That's the only, it's through, salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone. Or by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. There is no other way. And actually all other faiths are false, even of the devil, some Christians would say. Extreme exclusivists, said this view, exclusivism, is taught in most traditional churches and it has a lot of scriptural backing. Ex extreme exclusivism would even say, well, even other denominations, not sure about them. You know, our denominations all right, but other denominations, well, you know, they do some funny stuff down at that church down the road, don't they? Um, and uh, the problem with this extreme view, if you take it to its extreme, and not everybody does, then it makes God out to be uncaring or even cruel. That, uh, you know, what about all the people who simply can't hear about Jesus? 
What about that child yesterday in uh, Syrian Kurd in northern Syria who died? He had no chance of hearing the gospel. And all the children who've died since, they have no chance. What about the people in our country who who have a mental disability and will never understand really what this is about? What about them? Does God not care about them? What about all the people before Jesus who couldn't call on the name of Jesus because they hadn't been to Jesus? Uh, Now, actually, a lot of exclusivists will say, well, actually, you can hold that. You can hold a view, only Jesus, and that other people we leave to God's mercy. Uh, Genesis 18, will not the judge of all the earth do right? That we just trust God with that. And that's a valid view that a lot of people, a lot of people here will have as well. So, universalism at one end, exclusivism at the other end, and, you know, just as you would expect, there are lots of positions in between that some Christians have. So, in between, you have this inclusivist view. So, universalist at that end, exclusivist at that end, and then you've got this inclusivist view somewhere, kind of in the middle of this spectrum that says, well, other religions may hold some truth, I can see that, but actually Jesus is the ultimate and complete truth, the only revealed truth. In the past, God spoke to our fathers at many times in different ways, but in these last days, he has spoken by his son. The son is the ultimate truth, as the writer to Hebrews says in chapter 1. Some inclusivists will say that Christ may reveal himself to people in ways we don't understand, that Jesus may reach people in ways that we can't, that are not given to us to understand. There may even, there is this, even this idea of an anonymous Christ, that Christ presents himself, that people sometimes following their own faith, whatever that is, may be, may be worshipping Jesus without even knowing it. That's an inclusivist view in other faiths, that Jesus may actually be present in ways that are not clear. The idea of an, an anonymous Christ. And their view, the inclusivist view, is that ultimately everybody, everybody gets the opportunity to respond. Everybody gets the opportunity to say, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Everybody gets that opportunity. Even those who died long before Christ. And uh, there's a lot of uh, a doctrine in the church about this. So uh, the people who wrote the, the creeds of the church, what we believe... And these are the same people filled with the same Holy Spirit who brought us the Bible. So if we trust the canon of Scripture, then we should trust what they wrote down uh, of what we believe. And there's a statement in the creeds that says, if, you're, if you've ever been an Anglican, you'll know this. Uh, Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was, he was uh, crucified, he died, and he was buried. He descended to the dead. That statement is there. Christ descended to the dead on Good Friday. And actually something happened that we don't understand between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And then it goes on. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. And this doctrine which uh, teaches that actually Christ proclaimed to imprisoned spirits in hell, in the dead, among the dead... The Eastern Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, have a name for that. They call it the harrowing of hell. The harrowing of hell that over the period of Easter, the gates of hell were actually closed. And again, as with all these views, there is scriptural backing. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. 
for Christ died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us back to God, right? He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. And then it goes on. This is Good Friday. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago in the time of Noah. Interesting verse. And it's, it's a verse that the Eastern Church uses to defend this doctrine, of this inclusivist doctrine. So, there are all these views, lots of isms, right? Universalism, exclusivism, inclusivism, and there's a spectrum in between. There are shades of colors of all of these. And uh, in any room, any room full of Christians will have a variety of opinions. I know in this room there are a variety of opinions. And sometimes we, we're not sure. We, you know, it depends who, who we last heard and what book we last, last read and who we spoke to. And we'll change our view a little because, because we're not sure. And we could go on about it for the next 20 minutes about these isms, but let's not. Rather than that, let's look at how did Paul deal with this? What did Paul do when he came across another religion in Acts? And it's Paul in Athens. So just a little bit of background before we get into it. What's happening here? Paul is on a missionary journey to spread the news of Jesus. He is with Timothy and Silas, <coughs> Luke, <coughs> possibly Barnabas. But for a time, he's on his own. For some time, we don't know, it could be some days, he ends up on his own in Athens. He's walking the streets, absorbing the culture. And the Greek culture was the pinnacle of human achievement at the time. Their architecture was amazing. They had philosophy. They had mathematics. They had science. They had literature. And they also have gods or idols, which we'll come to. So this is a, uh, this is an important passage for two reasons. For me, one's theological and one's personal. The theological importance is, I, I believe, this is possibly the most commented on passage in the whole of Acts. The more people have written about this passage in Acts than almost any other. So it's worth reading this. Secondly, just I, the first sermon I ever preached in 1986 was on this passage. Haven't haven't preached on it in 33 years since. And I did dig out my sermon yesterday from 33 years ago. I still had it and read it. It's 50 minutes. <laughs> and Alison said, don't tell them that. They'll all panic on Sunday. But don't worry. I guarantee this sermon is no more than 48 minutes. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Let's get into it. Um, it, it is a longish passage, but it's not that complicated. So hang in there. And listen to it, it's not that complex, but it is a couple of pages, a couple of screens. So Paul is in Athens, waiting for his colleagues. So while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is, it, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. 
Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, a rock in Athens, where you can still go today, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, Paul, we want to hear you again on this subject. Tell us about this. So, Paul's reaction to the idols, the statues he finds, is one of indignation. He's grieved, actually, in his heart. Idols dedicated to gods who, in fact, are no gods at all. And... He starts a conversation with the local debating society. Because just like today, uh, where you can easily find forums on the internet for debates, there's the latest Twitter debate going on, so too at that time, people liked to debate. He was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. And that happens today then. And they say, Paul... Come, explain your ideas. Tell us, what, what is this that you're talking about? So, importantly, you'll see in Paul's speech, Paul doesn't condemn them. He condones them. Paul doesn't seek to undermine what they're doing. He seeks to understand it. People of Athens, he says, I see that in every way you are very religious. It's not sarcasm. He's, he's being honest. I see, you really are religious. You're really searching here. For as I wandered around, I saw all these idols. And I even found one 
This is the message translation I've chosen, which I think gives the, the spirit of what he's saying. I found one inscribed, to the God nobody knows. So there's a God to the sun, there's a God to the trees, there's a God to water. And then there's this God, to the God nobody knows. I'm here to introduce you to this God. So you can worship him intelligently, know who you're dealing with. His words, Paul is gently confrontational, doesn't try to undermine, he tries to understand. As he gets to the point of this idol of an unknown God. This idea of an unknown God was not uncommon, and you will find uh, there's a temple in Rome where it's inscribed, which there are all different gods, but there's one, to a God or many gods, so a catch-all. It's a little bit like people who even don't believe today you know, might desperately just shout a prayer out and say, if there's anybody up there, please can you help me? If there's anybody listening, please can you get me out of this situation? I don't know you, but there might be a God. It's kind of that kind of kind of call, just kind of, you know, just in case there's a God, I'm praying this prayer. So just in case there's another God that they haven't counted, they've got this idol to an unknown God. So he says this phrase, and then I found this, this, uh, this God inscribed to the God nobody knows. I'm here to introduce you to this God so you can worship him and know who you're dealing with. So he's commending their kind of groping around in the dark, a kind of fumbling around to find out who God is. Paul commends their honest search, and it's a door opener. This unknown God, he thinks, this is, this is a conversation I can have. So he finds points of agreement with them, these people of another faith. He talks about creation, God making himself known in creation, which Paul has written about elsewhere. You will write later in uh, Romans chapter 1 that uh, ever since the beginning of the world, God has made himself known. His invisible qualities have been made known through his creation. God speaks through creation. And the Athenians get that. And then... His masterstroke, he quotes to them, not from scripture, we'll come to that, he quotes from their own literature. He quotes to them, and he says this, this is in, uh, in one, uh, one of their own poets has said, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring, we are God's offspring. So he's saying, well if we are God's offspring, how can God be made of wood, or stone, or silver? If we are God's children, Athenians, you're clever people, you're philosophers. If we are his offspring and you believe that, then how can God be an idol? It's a great point. Interestingly, he doesn't quote from scripture. He could have done. There's loads in scripture about God being in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands, says the psalmist in Psalm 19. Or in Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. You've set your glory above the heavens. He could have quoted from the scriptures, but he chooses not to because they, they don't care about the Jewish scriptures. They're the height of civilization. This is the Greeks. They've got science. They've got mathematics. They've got philosophy. They are the, they are the leading civilization in the world. And some guy who comes along with a Jewish book, that's not going to cut any ice. So he doesn't do that. He quotes from his own scriptures. There's no point in quoting from the Old Testament. That wouldn't carry any weight here. But he does allude to Jesus. He alludes to scripture. 
without quoting. He quotes from their own writings then. And then, of course, at the end of his speech, it comes to a sudden stop. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, because the Greeks believed that when you're dead, you're dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers and believed. That's okay for a good day's work. Good, a good day's work has been done. He's at least presented to them some, some, some testimony from their own scripture that there's something not hanging right about their beliefs. If, God, if we are God's offspring, if we are God's children, then how could God be made of stone or idol? That, that's a, a, a good achievement, far enough for one day. So what do we learn? What does any of Paul's speech mean for us? What can we learn? I think the most important thing we learn, we'll go into a couple of details, but the most important thing we learn from Paul's speech is he's moved the question, he's reframed the question from our starting question, from what does God make of other faiths, to how do I approach people of another faith? He's changed the question. How do I approach people of another faith? I think that's the right question. And... Um, I believe from my experience it's the right question as well. Um, having been lived for a time as an adult in India, and many of the world's religions have come from India, Buddhism, Hinduism, Sikhism, uh, and lived, a lot of my friends at school were Muslims. Actually, if you go to Blackburn now, 99.9% .9 of that town is Muslim. Um, I, I think that's the right question to ask. Let's, let's not think about, well, what does God make of that? Our job is how do we approach people of another faith. So three things for what we can learn. First one is it's not actually up to you or me to decide who's in and who's out of God's kingdom. We like to have those inclusively, those kind of discussions. But that's not our, our decision. That's not up to you. It's not up to me. We just don't know in the Bible... Look at Acts chapter 11 and Cornelius, or look in the Old Testament at uh, Cyrus. God seems to hear the prayers of, of a pagan, which is strange. I don't understand that, but that's not, that's not my decision for, to say, God, you shouldn't have heard his prayers. He's not a Jew. He wasn't a Christian. God's not going to ask my view on that. More importantly, in the New Testament, Jesus had a habit, a consistent habit, of including people that everybody else excluded the religious people of the day, who were like us, always excluded people. Well, they're not in. They, they are not part of our group. They are not in. And Jesus deliberately annoyed them and infuriated them by saying, actually, you know what? The prostitutes and the tax collectors, he says, are entering the kingdom ahead of you. What do you make of that? Jesus made it his habit to include people that everybody else excluded. So we need to take care, judging people. Matthew chapter 7, do not judge or you will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use for others, it will be measured to you. If we go around measuring people, it will be measured to you in the same way. It's not ours to decide. And there are accounts of scripture, across scripture, we talked about them, some, some of them earlier in the summer, where God extends grace unfairly to people who shouldn't have it. 
we talked about Jonah in Nineveh, and um, the Ninevites were all supposed to die, and God forgives them, and Jonah's really cross about it, and God says to Jonah, well, that's not your decision. Or there's a prodigal son where the younger son comes back, and the older son's really cross, and said, well, all this time I've spent with you, and the father says to the older son, son, everything I have is yours, but I'm going to welcome this younger son, because he was dead and was alive. Or the parable of the workers in the vineyard where some workers came at 6 in the morning and worked for 11 hours till 5 p.m. Others came at 9 a.m. or some came at noon. Some came at 3 p.m. But some workers only came at 5 p.m. They only did an hour. And when it came to paying them, the people who worked an hour got the same pay as the people who worked 11 hours. And the people who worked 11 hours said, that's not fair. Why? You can't treat them the same as us. And Jesus' reply was, isn't it my money to do with as I choose? Or, really interesting line, are you jealous because I am generous? Are you jealous because I am generous? So, it's not up to you and it's not up to me. Our job is not to decide who's in and out. Our job is to be good news and speak the good news of Jesus. That's our job, to be the good news and speak the good news of Jesus. Which brings us on to the second point. That whatever you think of universalists and exclusivists and all that stuff, there really are distinctives about the Christian faith. There are some things that make the Christian religion very different to any other religion. And we can't go through all of them. But here's a couple of them. First of all, Jesus, right? Jesus is different. There's no other religion where God actually started that religion. And Muhammad wasn't God, and uh, Buddha wasn't God. There's no Jesus is God, and uh, other faiths generally have this idea that you have to strive to get to God. You have to work your way up. You have to keep forward the five pillars of Islam. You have to be careful with your karma in Hindu, or it will, or it will you come back as something worse. Christianity turns that upside down and says, actually, you, we can't do get to heaven. But you know what? God loved you so much that he came to here. He came down to earth. It's the idea of other religions on its head. That God is saving a people who are far away, and he does it through the death of his dear son, is a unique idea, a very unique idea. The suffering servant idea is very unique. The birth of God in a stable... The death of God as a criminal. This is, this is disturbingly unique. And it's offensive to many people. That at the very heart of our faith is the idea of a God who suffers, is denigrated, tortured, and dies. The only faith that has at the center the death of its own God because, because, of, through, because of love. That's a Christian idea. That's a unique idea. We could say more, but also just the Bible is also very, very different. And if you ever get into one of these discussions, we'll talk about that in a minute, but these are things to bear in mind, that Christianity is different. The Bible is very different. The, the events of the New Testament are historical and testable events. Is that me? Um, that the, there was a man called Jesus... A rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, is a historical and testable event. That he went to a cross and was crucified, non-Christian writers have written this, it's a historical and testable event. That after he died, some people said he's come back to life, some people said he's come back to life, 
is a historical and testable event. And those few men who said he'd come back to life, uh, a bedraggled bunch of frightened men, went off and started a movement that we now call the Worldwide Church with more than 2 billion people. That's a historical. Everything I've told you, 95% of scholars, whether they're Christian or not, would agree with. Now compare that to other religions where a lot of the Quran is private revelation from Gabriel to Muhammad. You can't test that. A lot of, uh, I mean, the Book of Mormon is completely private. That this guy, Joseph Smith, went off into the forest and met an angel. You can't test that. Or the, or the Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu, Hindu scriptures, speak of epics and battles long, long ago and dialogues between gods at the beginning of time. You can't test any of that. So there, there really are differences about Christianity. There really are factual differences that make it different. And then lastly, and perhaps most simply, in order to be interesting, we have to be interested. What do I mean by that? In order to be interesting, Paul, you see, shares the gospel with a generous spirit. He respects their culture. He's read their culture. He knows their poets. He doesn't, he doesn't discard it and say, no, I'm going to broadcast to you. This is what you need to believe. Here's the Old Testament. He respects their culture. He listens to them. He has even learned the best of their culture. And what about us? We often are full of our own message, aren't we, as Christians? Our own, we're in our own bubble where we all agree with each other. But we understand very little of why people around us think the way they do. Why do people think like that? I need to listen as well as broadcasting to people who think differently to me. Um, Everybody has a faith. Everybody in the world has a faith. Even atheists have a faith. When an atheist makes a statement like um, there was a big bang at the beginning of time, a point of singularity and a big bang, you can't prove that. That's the belief. That's the statement of faith. When an atheist says, after this life there's nothing, you can't prove that. That's a statement of faith. So everybody has a faith. And we can ask them about their faith. What is it you believe and why do you believe that? As someone once said to me, if you want to be interesting, you have to be interested. If you want to put stuff out on the internet, and nobody's going to come and read your stuff, Chris, unless you're interested in what they're talking about. And I had to learn that. And people around us need to know that we appreciate their view and we will listen to their view as much as we will disagree with it, but we will listen to it first. So how good are we uh, at our workplaces, around the water cooler, of asking people, what, what do you think? What's your belief? Can you, how, do you, how do you reconcile that? with What's your worldview of these things? And sharing our own view, but listening as well, even in our, in our own families. Do we, do we listen to those people who don't believe as well as broadcast? So just to wrap up then, three things again. We don't know who's in and who's out. God knows. He hasn't asked you to judge that. He hasn't asked me to judge that. Our job is to bring good news. Secondly, there are distinctives about Christianity which we can talk to people about that make it different. And thirdly, in order to be interesting to other people, we must be interested in their views and what they think. And often as Christians we find that hard. What do you believe? What do you think? Because we're a little bit worried about it. We've got to listen. We've got to be people who listen as well as broadcast. Let me pray.
And um, I'm just going to pray a prayer and uh, ask God actually to bring us to bring to us this week, perhaps one or more of those people who we do disagree with. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that in Jesus is the ultimate truth, the complete truth, the revealed truth to us. Thank you, Lord, that we know that. And you've, for reasons that we don't understand, you've made that truth knowable to us. Lord, this week, this week, Lord, I pray, Father, that uh, for each of us here, that says amen at the end of this prayer, for each of us here, that you would uh, give us an opportunity to share that good news with somebody at work, at home. We pray, Lord, there would be a situation that you'd put us in where we can listen and speak of what we believe. And if you agree with that, let's say amen. Amen.